Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. So this was never meant to be a part two. No, it was meant to be the one, but we just didn't want to stop him rolling, did we? Two hours long, insane, you know. I mean, the man with a thousand stories. And the big ones are yet to come. That's what you it- got this week. They really are, you know, Live Aid and, and I think as we said last week, getting, getting uh, Led Zeppelin back together, getting Floyd back together. You're involved in that little story, aren't you? Yeah, well, not as involved as you are in Live Aid, but there you go. Well, that's true. Um, but fascinating stuff that I didn't even know about Live Aid is yet to come. I mean, Harvey was just one of, is one of those guys, because I guess, you know, he's, he's been around for so many bands. I mean, so many great bands. And, do you know, I'm not even sure we touched too much on the Rolling Stones. I don't think we did at all. Or no, did we? So, the, so there's a part three in the making. And, and part four. <laughs> in fact, maybe we should just had to be, just get rid of Rock on Tours and just be the Harvey Goldsmith podcast from now on. Yeah. So um, I think, but the feedback from last week was phenomenal. So I'm sure everyone's happy about this. Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone's glad we split it into two parts. This is definitely the way to go. And, uh, and it's quite nice anyway, because most of you are regulars, aren't you? And it's like, you know, it makes a change. <laughs> <laughs> What's okay. happened to me, man? What's I happened don't know. to me? I don't. You said some what Easter relaxing. Man? Your ass was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very relaxed for Easter. Is that what it is? I think I'm very relaxed. That's what it is. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Let's, yeah. Let's get. Go on. Say it. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a party. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Experience oh, yeah, to, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Let's talk about your charity 
got gigs is, is something you become so famous for. Um, and it seems to me that looking back, that the one I can see as being like the first major one was Concert for Campuchia. Is that right, Harvey? Uh, I think I did the first Who shows before Concerts for Campuchia. Oh, at the, at the Oval? Yeah, we did the, well, the Oval. That was for Bangladesh. Was that for Bangladesh? Was it? Yes, and then we did, we, yeah. we did four stadium concerts called Who Put the Boot In? And the money for that went to uh, build Erin Pitts's shelter for women, battered women. Ah. Oh, I did. Well, I did one with. And then, I did one with Pete for that. I did one at the Astoria for Pete. Yes, uh, with, we did a Pete. lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think those were the first. And then uh, I was working with Paul McCartney, and um, he came up with the idea for the concerts at Cambridgeshire, and we put that together, which again was very early on. Very good, good show. Amazing, Bill. Amazing. A week of week no, of shows. Incredible. Yeah. But then, because a lot of the Floyd shows used to be, they didn't really trumpet it, but they ended up going to charity just because I think David said it was just kind of, you were paying so much tax, you might as well just, you know, you could give so much more to charity than you could put in your pocket. That's true. I so, mean, I, I, it, it is it is quite true to say that a lot of artists, the ones you least expect, actually support a huge range of different charities but they do it very quietly. They don't make a big fuss about it. Some of them do, some of them more than others, but a lot of them who you really don't think uh, do that, actually, even to this day, support a lot of charities, but they do it very quietly. Let's talk about Live Aid, because I can't believe we waited 55 minutes to talk about Live Aid. I mean, you know, Live Aid changed my life too, and everybody else's, and a lot of people in Africa. Um, but let's, let's, let's just... Take us through your history. We will sit back and listen. I'll do it as briefly as I can. Um, so I was aware, like everybody, of those terrible pictures that Michael Burke showed. It was probably the first time on the early evening news that anybody had ever seen pictures of people starving and the deprivation and all of the mess. And that championed um, Bob and me to write to their notes Christmas and record it and put all that together. I wasn't involved with the recording, but I went down to see what was going on. I I knew Bob well because I'd promoted the booms. There were only three, in the punk world, there were only three acts that I really liked. That was The Clash, The Jam, and funny enough, The Boomtown Rats. I just thought they were great. And so I did a lot of shows with, with, with all of them. So I knew Bob well. Anyway, Bob was persuaded to go to Africa um, he didn't want to go, but he was persuaded to go. He went, and when what he saw there, he realised that what they did with the record was a spit in the ocean. He came back from Africa and started calling me and said, uh, I've got this idea, we've got to do a concert. We, we haven't done nearly enough. We could do it. We've got to raise some money, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, I'm with you. I understand what you're talking about. I can't do anything now because I'm literally... Roger Waters had split from the Pink Floyd. I was doing his first solo tour and the opening night was in Radio City. And uh, I was also, I did all the Wham concerts and um, Simon Napier Bell phoned me up one afternoon and said, um, we're going to do a couple of concerts in Hong Kong. And I said, yes. He said, and then we're going to China. And I went, okay. And he said, I can't go to China because I'm not allowed in there. 
um, you need to go. You've got to take care of the whole thing. Put the phone down. <laughs> oh, God. Was, wasn't, there, wasn't there an incident? I mean, we, yeah. we, we might have to cut this out, but wasn't there an incident on the plane with Wham where one of the yes. band members stabbed himself? Yeah. Oh, oh he I, thought he was possessed by the devil. He had some sort of... It was one of the horn players. Yeah. had some sort Correct. of psychotic breakdown. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Wow. That was on the way. We'd been to see the... the um, we'd been to Shenzhen to see the soldiers and in in the tunnels and he got completely freaked out and hallucinated on the plane he was a skinny guy it took three of us to hold him down and strap him in he broke the strap he actually broke the safety belt they'd never seen that before he got in such a state but anyway that was another thing so here i am i'm now working with roger waters on his first solo career he was roger as you know is not the easiest person on the planet to work with and so on oh. and quite demanding and we were going to play in Radio City, and he wanted to put this, what he calls a holographic sound system in Radio City, which trying to persuade Radio City to do anything out of the norm just immediately cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, which it did. And from there, I had, to get, I had three days to get from New York to um, Hong Kong and the only way I could get to New York, to Hong Kong from New York was to go via Japan, which was a nightmare. So I arrive in Hong Kong, where am I playing? I'm going to play two concerts in the Coliseum in Hong Kong, all sold out, wild, meet Simon. And Simon says, OK, I've done my bit, over to you, I'll see you later, as Simon did, and off he went. And I'm going, what? And he gave me a little piece of paper with the name of a guy at the All China Youth Agency, who's going to meet me outside the um, customs in Shenzhou. And I'm going, that's it? And he said, that's it. You'll deal with it. They're all, it's all organised. We'll all get there. Anyway. <laughs> so Bob had been driving me nuts, I, and I couldn't really think. And I was also doing three shows of Bruce Springsteen at Wembley Stadium, which I had to get prepared and ready to go. All at the same time, I said, I can't think about this concert. Off I went to New York. Shows went well, thank goodness. He went off then on doing some more dates. I then got to, eventually got to China. We arrive in Shanghai, uh, not Shanghai, in uh, Shenzhen, was. And um, there's no one there. We arrived. <laughs> and I, I made, I did one great thing. Before the band left, because they were coming from London, I was coming from New York, I said to the tour manager, take a suitcase, stuff it full of T-shirts, hats and CDs and cassettes. Just fill it up and take it with you because you never know when you're going to need it because I had experience with that when I, I, I took Elton John to Russia. It was the first time a Western pop band had been there. So I knew what... The, the form was, and boy, did that come in handy. So we arrive at immigration, there's 50 of us. The Chinese guys are looking at us going, what? <laughs> Who are you? What? And I'm going, here, we're, we're performing with the All China Youth Agency, and they go, no one here. And I look out the other side of the border, there is nothing and no one. And I said, <laughs> and I said, look, just stay cool i'm going to go out and find out what the hell's going on here this is nuts so anyway we got out finally two buses arrive nobody that spoke english two drivers i go up and i go wham and the driver goes like that 
pile everybody on the Not bus. Which unfortunately in Chinese means... <laughs> there was no sign of anybody. Anyway, we get to the hotel and I said to her, we don't unpack because we might be going home tomorrow. I don't know. We don't have a promoter. I don't know what the hell's going on. Anyway, get into the hotel, blah, 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 blah. I get changed. We go to bed. Quarter to two in the morning, the phone's ringing. The phone's ringing and there's someone banging on my door. Oh, the police so I open the door and this Chinese chap is jumping up and down he's really he said come with me get dressed come with me I said who are you he said I'm from the China Youth Agency good news I said what's the good news he said we have the license to do the show I said but they're tomorrow you mean you he said yes come with me so I get dressed get to the car a quarter to three in the morning there are concentric queues round the block of this arena because the, t- the people have been waiting and at midnight the night before the Chinese authorities finally gave a license to the bloody wow. wow unbelievable anyway we went I'm taking it you had no money in advance from them either well the, the, the only thing I didn't deal with Simon dealt with the money I had the cash to deal with the visas and the t-shirts and the CDs and the hats went down an absolute storm so that got us into China anyway we did them with the shows and all the brouhaha and it was quite something and we did the chart you know the walk on the wall and all the press and everything came back because it was also launched them in America, wasn't it? That the whole yeah. point was to sell them in America. Yeah. My uh, my sister in law was there, Shirley. She was part. Yeah, of, of course she was. And George hated every minute of it. Every minute, all he wanted to do was go home. Oh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Bless. Bless. <laughs> anyway, I did all that. I get back to England. I'm absolutely like I'm wrecked. And the next morning, I go into the office. Say hello to everybody. And before I knew what happened, Bob was standing there. He said, you've got to do this bloody concert. You've got to do this concert. <laughs> That's why, from start to finish, it was ten and a half weeks. Because I could just couldn't get my head around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you start the calls? Because the whole balancing act of who's free and who isn't free and what date is the best date to do. And, and did you do Philadelphia as well? Yeah. So, I mean, that... Who did you call first? What was the first band you called? Or was it Bob doing those? <laughs> it was neither. You know what really happened? Bob said, we've got to announce it because it's not enough time. We've got to, because we didn't, you know, at, at the time, we had no idea whether we thought we'd sell the tickets quickly, but you don't know. You knew you had the Boomtown Rats, that was all. So we arranged a press conference at Wembley the biggest number of press I've ever seen in the whole of my life turned up. About 400 people from all over the world. What have they been told, though? What were they? We're making the announcement about this big concert. Right, 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 but yeah. And um, there were TV from about 40 countries. There were radio journalists. There were, it was unbelievable. And John Kennedy, Bob, Meech, myself, um, and Chris Morrison are all sitting on his table. I'm sitting next to Bob. And Bob gets up and, well, you know, we welcome, I welcome everybody. Then blah, blah, blah. Bob gets up and says, we're going to do this concert. And literally started rattling off a list of names. And I started kicking him under the, I'm sitting next to him, kicking his shin. So <laughs> Bob, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say He's going through like the A to Z. Anybody and everybody he'd ever heard of, he announced. And, 
literally the only act we had was the boomtown rats until that point yeah. and that's the truth of it yeah <laughs> he just bullshitting his way through it all. but god who was who how did it begin to yeah, so, piece itself yeah. well um i think that what happened was at the time with the american thing it was very early days and i'd asked bill graham to do it bill graham insisted it was on the west coast and once we got the bbc involved we knew we had, you know, this concert was going to work. It took a while to get the BBC, but we once they came on board and unprecedentedly allowed us to have 16 hours of television, wow. um, which nobody yeah. did ever have before. And then we put wow. this whole infrastructure together, start selling the television. It, was, it wasn't difficult to start getting the acts. But this so, is how big music was in those days. Yeah. At that time, this music was... was yeah sold so and racks that came from the uk were all global artists were yes they? that's true and so it, it was um bob was just relentless he was calling people up morning noon and night and obviously a lot of the artists that soloed uh, that sang with him at for when they were recording the song he went to them first of course because they were already bought in so they all said yes and whoever he'd asked and so on and then we were just slowly reeling in. And I I wanted Queen to do it. And um, Bob didn't want to know about them. And I said, you've got to have Queen because we, in the middle of the afternoon, because my thing was trying to visualise what this show was going to look like and to start figuring out which act would play when and how it would work. And technically, how we could change over from one act to the next because we were on such a strict uh, time constraint, that's why we devised the circular the stage. And the traffic lights. The traffic lights. We had the circular stage with one band playing, one band equipment coming off, and another band at the back going on. And we would just turntable the stage and so on. And um, I knew in the afternoon there's going to be a lull period, and I thought the best act that could do it was Queen. And I had these terrible arguments with Bobby, didn't want to know about them. Mm. And Why was that? He, he just didn't like them. He just didn't think they were relevant. And I kept it's, saying, you don't understand. Sort of, they're the best they'd had a, match in the planet. But they'd reached their peak a little bit by then, hadn't they? Had a bit, yeah. yeah. But nevertheless, as a live act, and I was working with them, I knew what Freddie could do to an audience. Yeah. And I Amazing. just had it in my mind. That time in late afternoon, early evening, before any of the you know so-called main acts went on, um, they're the perfect act. And but boy, do they owe you some money, Harvey, because that changed their career, didn't it? Really? It sure did. It sure did. And you too. And you too as well. But what, yeah. what, what Freddie did, what Queen did, which which tricked everybody really, because we all wished we'd done it afterwards. We were kicking ourselves. I mean, us especially, because we did one new song. What the fuck? Yeah. But 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 yeah. but they did. They were the only act to do a medley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, they could cram in the hits. You have to give Freddie's due. The one thing he understood above and beyond most people was his audience. <laughs> and what to do with them. And the bigger the audience, the more he knew what to do with them. And that whole idea, as you said, of cramming all the hits, all the anthems in, into a medley, just never, I mean, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And um, anyway, it just went from there. And it was one after the other. How was it with the, I mean, because just the sheer amount of egos involved here, 
But did everyone just put everything aside and just kind of the night or were there moments? on the night before? Um, I got a phone call from the head of uh, of uh, CBS Records, Tommy Matola. Oh yeah, and at that time we had agreed a deal with MTV to show the whole show, but ABC Television would only show uh, three hours. That was it. We couldn't get any of the other networks to take the whole show except MTV. And the phone call goes, this is, so the, the night before, there's three things happened. So the first thing was this. He says, if you don't put Hall and Oates on the main TV show, which we hadn't planned to, we're gonna, I'm going to pull Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. And I said, you can go fuck yourself, <laughs> do whatever you want to do. We're not changing it now, and I'm not changing anything the night before. Long, put the phone down. Five minutes later, remember, there's no mobile phones. There's handsets at home. Uh, we should, about two weeks before, I pulled every handset out of my from home out because the phone was ringing starting at seven o'clock in the morning and finishing half past two three o'clock the next morning and my wife was going loopy anyway um the next thing that happened i get a phone call from my production manager andy's work he said i can't he said everybody's down tools they can't cope anymore the turntable stage is packed up i don't know what to do i think nobody's going to turn up tomorrow Group rights. oh god I jumped in my car, got off to Wembley, stopped off at um, at the off-license, I bought two crates of beer, I put it in the thing, got there, took the crates of beer out, gave everybody a beer, sat them all down, I said, guys, we've got to make this work. This is now half past 10, 11 o'clock at night. We've got to make this work. We're, even if we're going to get a load of mice to roll around and I start making them laugh, have a beer, whatever, and it all calmed down. We finally figured out what the problem was, which was, a scaffolding pole had got into the mechanism that was turning around. And every time it got got about a quarter of the way around, it would get stuck. We figured that out, got rid of it, sorted it out. And by 11.30, the, um, uh, the turntable started working. I go back home. I'm now, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. I thought, Bob, I told you the whole saga, the, the saga we told him, or whatever, whatever, whatever. I said, you know what, if this works, it's going to be a minor miracle. And we both, at about 2.30 that morning, had come to the conclusion that we might raise five million quid out of the two shows. And I had a nightmare with Bill Graham, who literally tried to stop the show in Philadelphia. But we only oh. chose Philadelphia. Again, Bob didn't want to know about it because I couldn't get giant stadium or shade stadium in new york which was the obvious place because yeah, they had yeah. games on i couldn't get <clears throat> uh, the stadium in washington i couldn't get fenway park in boston and he didn't know where philadelphia was because the stadium there isn't very classy really well, also well, well the west coast just too far time difference wise yeah. because okay. we with the satellite yeah eight hours meant we couldn't have a cohesive show and the whole idea was, as we finished in London, the TV would go straight to America, where they wouldn't have started. So we That's couldn't, right. we couldn't quite, we couldn't work out how to do it with eight hours. We could only, and we didn't know whether the satellites would be on that side of the world 
at that time anyway. And we're all plotting here with a pair of, with a map and a pair of calipers trying to figure out where the bloody satellite was going to be. Oh my God. It was quite, it was really quite um, arcane. Uh, I, I mean, to... what's extraordinary on the day, Harvey, is that every band who turned up, Guy was mentioning the egos and all of that, but every band played fair, didn't they? They all Everyone. went on in their time slot. And no matter who you were, you had exactly the same time. Exactly. And we all, I remember being backstage and everyone wanting to, to make this work. Everyone believing in it. hundred percent. It was every act that played the show on both sides of both here and in Philadelphia. And indeed there was a third show in Australia. All went there with the right mindset. And I, in the morning, I got, I think I had three hours sleep. I woke up very early and I suddenly thought, clocks, clocks, clocks. I got dressed. I shot down the venue. I go to one of the roadies. I said, go find a shop that sells clocks, buy 40 clocks. Go to Smith's because they're somewhere in Cricklewood, their headquarters. So just get me 40 clocks. <laughs> and I got one of the girls to type out a note which said, which I put up everywhere in every dressing room and everywhere I could possibly think of. And I wore a clock around my neck and I, oh. I wrote this note said, I don't care what time you, you go on, but I do care what time you come off. Please keep uh. the time. Please came the, please play the game with us. And I put them everywhere and told everybody and it just helped. But every single artist that played, whatever their reputation was, when it came to that show, uh, played the game and they were all standing Normally, they would come on late or dribble on when they were ready. They were all standing on the side of the stage ready to go. And I had another rule. I wouldn't let anybody on the side of the stage, you know, normally there's crowds of people watching the show, mm -hmm. because I was petrified that if they got in the way of any of the cabling or the crew, as did happen with poor old Paul McCartney, which was a, a pure accident. It was a freak accident. He lost his mic, yeah. Lost his mic. Bitchy uh, in the rush to turn over to, to change round, one of the roadies tripped up over the distribution board and he he couldn't see it, but a cable had come out, and that's why we'd lost his we'd lost his bike on the. On uh, the uh, I have to. I have Brian, I have, Brian Ferry had something like that, didn't he? He had like two or three mics in his hand at one point. Yeah, I think one of his mics. Sorry, I have to say, um, I, I you're you're probably going to tell me off now, Harvey, but Pete took me up. When The Who went on, I went up with Pete and I did stand on the side of the stage. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, but it wasn't like a normal big stadium show with his no, dozens no. of people because no, I just no. couldn't take the risk of anything going wrong. And I needed a clear stage to get, you know, if you, as much as people praise the acts for doing it, the praise has to go to the crew. Oh, who literally... Always. Yeah, just never stopped. They yeah. never stopped. They were, they were all that saga the night before with the turntable packing up and not working. By the time we got that working, they still had loads to do. They were there. When I got there at 8.30 in the morning, they were already sound checking and get, you know, getting ready. I mean, they were relentless. And the job they had to do where they had literally minutes to change over the biggest acts in the world set and their, and their equipment, and the turntable and how it worked and getting them on is unbelievable. And they don't get enough praise and they deserve every single bit of praise they could possibly get because they made that whole show work. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's that famous picture when we're all on stage at the end, obviously, and we're all singing, and there you are. So I'm assuming that's relief we can all see on your face at the front of the stage. Absolutely. Um, right at the end, it, it, it was actually, it was, it was George Michael that grabbed hold of me Chubby on the in the middle of the artist, right at the end of the encore. Um, when it all finished, Bob and I were sitting on a drum riser, just looking at this sea of of detritus that was all over the stadium. Unfortunately, we I'd made an announcement as I always do, and there were enough volunteers, all with black bags, starting to pick up all the rubbish and whatever. And we just looked at each other. We were completely drained, and he just looked at me and said, "Is that it?" <laughs> I think so. But of course it wasn't it because the American show was still carrying on and we all went down the embassy club afterwards to watch the American show. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a first. And we surprisingly, uh, how much money actually came in was was really quite... 140 million or something. I'm going to tell you because I'm just going to look up. I've got the actual numbers because I asked about it so the the actual day of the show was 80 million dollars and to date we've raised 2021 we've raised 270 million dollars and it's gone up since then and we keep getting money in and we can, I'm, I'm signing checks every two weeks now we're still supporting as many projects as we possibly can so that's just the way it is Guy, I wanted to, I, I mentioned while you just popped out to go to the loo, I was just saying, I'd really love to talk about Live 8 and Floyd, and of course, how it must have felt for you, Guy, as well, suddenly not to be in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, can I tell my little story yeah, about yeah. it? Yeah. If we're going to talk about it. I was on holiday uh, in Formentera with David when Bob called him. And uh, and it was very fun. And, and I remember, he spoke, after the call, he said, he, you know, I said, what, that's it? He said, for... He said, let me just tell you, it's going to take more than Bob's ego to get me back up on that stage. Uh, I went, all right, fair enough, all right, fair enough. And then we came back to England and said, oh, there's all this talk about this thing. And I said, no, 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 I was with that. No, no, it's not going to happen. And I remember the next night I was at home and the phone goes, pick it up. David said, are you sitting down? <laughs> but unfortunately, I couldn't do it. I was meant to do it, but I was already booked you were doing to it. play with Roxy Music. I remember. But who would, and we were just doing a gig. We were just doing a gig. We had a gig in Germany that night. So that then became us doing the Berlin one. But I had this joke with Neil Warnock. I, was, I wanted to do, I said, can't I be like a really crappy budget version of Phil Collins at Live Aid and just go easy, easy jet from Berlin to London? <laughs> because, Guy, are you, are you, are you, sorry, are you talking about playing bass on Wish You Were Here because Roger plays acoustic on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I was going to do. Who did that? Uh, Tim, Tim right. Rennick. I'm actually... I'm, do you know, I was very happy to do it with Roxy. It was about the four of them. I'm kind of glad I wasn't there in a way, you know. I'd rather... Yeah, Tell us, it was, it was yeah. literally yin and yang. So Bob and I were literally phoning crossovers. So I was speaking more to David than, 
that Bob made the first conversation. I was staying talking to David. Um, Bob was talking to Roger. Then Roger was calling me, and David was calling Bob, and it was going backwards and forwards. And, backwards. and it was one of those strange situations where somehow or the other, all of them decided they wanted to do it. And they went away. It was amazing. It was amazing yeah, that that it happened. Was, it was. And it, uh, we didn't expect it, but it did happen. And it was good. And um, it was great. It was a highlight. I mean, the I mean, to- eight show was, was for a different reason, and but ended up also being quite iconic in what it was doing. It was there yeah. to pressurise the G8. It was called Live 8 because it was there to pressurise the G8 conference that was happening in Scotland. Uh, to put Africa yeah. on the agenda. That's what it was. Because we had a lovely thing, Harvey, just say, because when we had Bob on this very, very early, he gave a really lovely, eloquent little explanation of it. He said, because you now got all these G8 finance ministers yeah. who were all at college yeah. when Live Aid happened. Yes. So, you know, so, and these are now the people so, in positions yeah. of power. All so aware that of kind of made, really made sense of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Talk, talking about getting sort of beer moths to sort of gather and these giants who, with their egos, you then went on and reunited Led Zeppelin in was 2010 was that or something like that that was easy <laughs> was it was it tell us tell us about that because what a show that was and why it never I've got one little thing about how how in demand that was right that Led Zeppelin. I, I was really I was out of the country so I was really pleased to so I didn't have to find out whether or not I could get a ticket but I remember David Gilbert telling me right he said after all the stuff after everything you two have done together over all these years so I called up Harvey said uh I need six tickets. You went, you'll get two. <laughs> I just, very quickly, I just want to explain the Live 8 concert. Okay. Okay. The trustees who are the same people that have been involved since the beginning of Live Aid, which was John Kennedy, Bob Geldof, Meteor, Chris Morrison, who is Meteor, was Meteor's manager, mm-hmm. myself and Michael Grade. And the, the sixth person was Morris Oberstein, who was the head of, of uh, CBS Records, but he CBS, unfortunately yeah. passed away. And we, we are, we are, we've been there since day one. We all met to discuss what to do and decided we didn't want to do anything. It was only because Bono, Elton, and Madonna got on our case and said, you have to do something, which is why Live 8 came about. We didn't want to do it. And it was the artist that got onto us and said, you've got to do it. That's how that happened. And it, which is quite unusual, which is, you know, it shows the depth of of the whole process. So Led Zeppelin, um, I knew, loved the work with Led Zeppelin. Um, I did some. Of, I didn't do all their early tours, but I did their later tours. You did the Earl's Court ones, did didn't you? Didn't you do yeah. the, the legendary '75? And um, um, I did their last tour before uh, uh, Bonzo died. And when uh, Bonzo John Bonham died, the band felt they had nowhere to go. They didn't want to do anything, and so for various different reasons, they all split up, went their own way. When I first went to America, I had um, two, really three mentors. One of the mentors was the the agent that had built the promoting business of America called Frank Barcelona, who became my mentor. 
And the other two was Armit and Nesri Ersigan, who owned and ran Atlantic Records. Atlantic. And then still owned. And then and Armit was became a really close friend and a mentor and we did some nuts things together and whatever. And all the acts he signed to the label, I was promote I was lucky enough to promote pretty much. And so um and we had an amazing relationship. When he passed away, um, I was actually with him. When, and what happened was he had an accident um, backstage going to see a Stones concert. At the he Beacon, was over it? a cable. Right, yeah. and it was he during never... the fil filming of, um, of, of Shine the a Light. thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, he never recovered from it. So, But I knew Armit really well, and I knew Mika, who I still know very well. And... Um, Whenever I went to New York, I always go there for dinner, or we go for lunch, whatever it was. When um, when Armit passed away, they decided to have a memorial service, and everybody came to New York to have them for the memorial. At the end of the memorial service, um, there was a big lunch at the Tavern on the Green afterwards, and just before we we were walking out of the, of the service, Mika came up to me and she said, "You know." Armit would love, would have loved if there's to be anything, because everybody was mumbling, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? Um, would have loved for you to do a concert, not in New York, but to do it in London. He said, because in New York, it's so political. There's so much of this, that, and the other, and the, the whole record company scene, and this and that and the other. He, she said, I, it, nothing would be better than to do something in London. So I said, my pleasure, you know, whatever it is, we're going to do it. So uh, we all went to lunch on the Tavern of the Green, blah, 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 and everybody was there. And I'd spoken, Phil Carson was, was used to run Atlantic Records. He now manages Motley Crue and foreign, co-manages Foreigner, and I've known him forever. And Bill Kerbishley, Obviously, because he was, he still manages the Who, was managing Robert Plant at the time, and we just had a brief conversation. I said, "Look, Mika's asked if we do a concert. Can, can we all can we get together and do something?" They said, "Yeah, let's talk about it." Anyway, we go to this lunch. I'm sitting next to Eric Clapton and Robbie Robertson and the, the band on the other side, and I and I could just throw out. I said, "Mika's just asked me if we would do." A memorial concert but in london so eric just shouted out he said i'll put cream together again i said really <laughs> wow <laughs> and so on and then you know I, we started to think about it and i said well we, we've got to get the best of the best and we'll put it all together we got back to london sat down with bill and phil and we started to work out what to do and we realized we're going to have to do this over two days so we all these different bands are doing it, and the only band that Armit absolutely adored was Led Zeppelin. Of all of them, he loved all the acts, but he adored Led Zeppelin because they were so outrageous. He got on famously with Peter Grant, which you know, which is even more outrageous, and so on and so forth. And they were the only ones that were eluding us. So. I asked Bill to get together with, because each of them had their own manager, to get together with all the managers and figure out if we could get Led Zeppelin to do something and to close the second day. 
So we were going to have cream and trying to get Genesis to reform. That wasn't easy either. And we were going through all the list of different acts and whatever, whatever, whatever. And we we felt if, if Led Zeppelin were closed the second day and, and everyone was going to do a 30-minute slot. Anyway, the next thing I know is I get a phone call. They have, Like Pink Floyd, they have their own joint company, which they reluctantly all turn up to. And it's a proper business they're all on the board and mm-hmm. there's an agenda and and uh and joe swift runs the uh, joan runs the um she's the accountant she runs the whole business and it's all very formal and they go through the business of the day anyway i get called when i come to a meeting go to the meeting and john paul jones jimmy and robert are there and um i said to them it would be fantastic if you would if you would come together and just do you know 30 minutes and close the show like everybody close the whole thing so Jimmy turned around and said, well, we haven't played. So Robert turned around and said, well, why don't we see if we can play? So they decided to go away. They went away for three days and they said, we're going to, we, we, we don't want anybody there. No managers, no nothing, no nobody. We're going off. We're going to find somewhere. We're going to see if we can actually play. And um, they did exactly that. So was Jason already in the picture, or uh, and it was? They, I can't remember when it was Jimmy's idea or Robert's idea to get Jason to play because he was known as he was a good drummer. He'd already that was yeah, bad, whatever. Brilliant. brilliant. So they brought Jason along, and Phil. It was Phil Carson, I think, that suggested Jason, if I remember correctly, because he was kind of involved with him somewhere down the line. Anyway, off they went. Ten days later, I get a phone call. We're in a meeting. Please come along. So I come along, I'm thinking, oh, it'd be great if they could close the second half, the second day. It'd be fabulous. So the three of them march in. They sit down, and Jimmy says, "I've got good news and bad news." So I said, "Well, okay, let's have a bit of the good news." He said, "The good news is we've rehearsed and it works, and we're going to do it. Fantastic." I said, "What's the bad news?" The bad news is we want to do a whole show. I said, done. <laughs> what? I said, done. Forget History. the done. And well. before, before, because I, I had, what happened was I had written a handwritten personal note to all of each of them to say it would be fantastic if you would do this. And I wrote it to each of them at their own homes or whatever. And I said, forget about touring, forget about an album, forget about anything, just do it for our bit. That's really what started it off. And they came out and said, yeah, we're going to do it. We, we, it's working, but we want to do a whole show. And I just, I got hold of Bill and Phil, said, forget the rest of it. That's it. That's all we want. So meanwhile, meanwhile, Cream have yeah. been hating each other for two weeks in a rehearsal room. <laughs> Can the Cream play on the night before? Or? No. <laughs> no. They did happened. later, but not then. Right, right, right. <laughs> and right, right. Uh, so we started this saga. It was unbelievable. It is true to say that when we announced it, there were 250 million hits on the internet, <laughs> which compl- and it's on record, and it completely crashed the internet. And when we put the tickets on sale, there were 25 million requests for tickets. Wait. God. And I got to the point where I was so determined to keep the touts out and the secondary market and all that rubbish that we have to deal with. 
I virtually knew the names of every single person in the photo <laughs> and uh, and uh, where they were sitting because I was so determined to stop the touts having a field day. It was it was unprecedented. Uh, I'll tell you something. The night before they were rehearsing at Shepperton, there were the three managers. There was myself and half the road crew were there in in uh, Shepperton. And they played the whole set. And I, we stood there and watched, and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. It was the best set I'd ever seen them play. And I went up to them, I said, I've never seen anything like that. The energy that was coming out was mind-blowing. And I went to them, I said, you don't remember half the talk. You, don't even, you didn't even know what city you were in, let alone what you did and whether you played. You have never played as good as this, ever. Yeah. And yeah. Well, Jimmy, Jimmy was straight, clean, you know. It was unbelievable, really, yeah. And did it break your heart that they never went on and did, because I know it, it you know, it's, fam it's famously, you know, Jimmy wanted to carry on, you know. Did it Did it break your heart that they, they didn't do any more? Actually, no, because my whole, my whole, the lesson that I wrote to them and what I said to them was, just do this one, forget about, all of the baggage and the this and that and the other and all the things that you could do. If you want to do that, that's completely separate. And if I could be part of it, that'd be great. But that's not what I just want this one show for Army. Because mm. I felt of all the things that he'd helped me with and all of the artists that he had looked after, particularly Led Zeppelin, that he deserved it. And of course, that's what we did. And the lasting legacy is that all the money we raised that came in went to scholarships. And actually what we've built, and I'm still on the board of it, is the Ertigan Scholarship. It's the largest scholarship in humanities in the history of Oxford University. And wow. we, we've just gone, it's a post-grad um, program where we pay for everything for the students. They come from all over the world. It's the top 5% of students from, from all over the world. Uh, we have a hard job. We've just been, we have three days of arguments trying to choose, you know, who's the best student of the best student wow. to do it. And we bought a house in the middle of Oxford, which is the envy of the university, because it's a state-of-the-art house where the students, they don't live there, but they work there. And it's open 24 hours a day for them to go in and work. It's all post-grad. Wow. And it's a lasting legacy, so it'll be there forever. You're a great uh, man, Harvey. You're a great man. And you've you've been honoured by various people over the years for, for what you've done for charity. But that, that I didn't know about. That's incredible. So this year, we've just had our 150th student that we put through. And they all get, they get multiple honours. Uh, we don't have anything less than distinction, et cetera, et cetera. They're PhDs, they're MPhils, which is two years, and they're master's degrees, students. Wow. Um, so when are you sending them on tour? <laughs> <laughs> but who would have thought, you know, really, from the sort of the counterculture, the subversiveness yes. of those late 60s, early 70s, and putting on bands that upset the establishment, that out of one of those most decadent of all bands would come yeah. this incredible gift <laughs> but also to add to that harvey you told me last time i said whatever the last big royal event was that 
you were actually basically running traffic in London, in central uh, London. I wasn't, but we have a production. Well, that's what... <laughs> Well, they, they don't Basically, ask. London was being run by you. <laughs> Not quite, but close. We have a we have a production company where one of one of the directors of the production company does a lot of government work. So he he's very good at doing traffic, and he does, he for five years he worked he produced. Um, we didn't own it, but the fireworks on. Um, uh, on New Year's Eve, on the Eye, and so part of the whole thing was how to deal with the traffic. So he became he became London's traffic expert. So I we were sitting in the office and getting calls from people begging us to what do we do? My, you know, we're getting married at at, um, uh, at whatever church it was. It's in the middle of the road. And what do we do with the car? Do we get in? You've got to... Hang on, what event was this? What event was this one? It was the was it the Queen's nineteenth yeah. or something? Yeah, quite bizarre. We do get up to some strange things, I have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> Harvey, but, what's next, Harvey? Well, what's next is um, strangely enough, we produced Lapland for the owners of Lapland, which is one of the best shows for kids I've ever seen in my life. Oh, I thought you were actually producing a country shit. now. I mean, which I wouldn't put it past you. We produce culture. Land. It's in, <laughs> in the forest in Ascot. It sells out. I mean, you talk about shows and concerts. This is a, a this is something that starts in the November, goes through to Christmas Eve. They sell one hundred and sixty-two thousand concerts uh, tickets in two hours. Expect a call from me at Christmas, by and the we, way. And it's amazing. So we do things like that. We're producing the New Year's Day Parade. We do a lot of production stuff. We produce 19 ultra EDM festivals around the world. In fact, we just finished two in South Africa. We're doing one in India next week and so on. So we're doing a lot of that kind of work. And then I'm still looking to find acts that, which is what I spent my life on, My, you know, the the last really big act that I created uh, was Hans Zimmer, who's now a diva beyond divas, right. but does the most uh, unbelievable biz set out business all over the world. Was the man who wouldn't get on the bus and now won't get off the he bus, right? He'd never been on the stage before. He was petrified. <laughs> and um, just by accident, I ended up doing the launch of Kung Fu Panda 2, which, of course, everybody knows and loves, which... Uh, Jeffrey Kassenberg asked me if we could do some different kind of event to launch it. And did I know who Hans Zimmer was? I said, well, he's the bloke that always writes the music because his name's always at the end of the, you know, the whatevers. <laughs> and they said, yeah, well, what do you think of the idea of him actually performing the music? So I said, great. Anyway, we did in 2012. We actually did a, a show at... Um, at Lord Spencer's house, Diana's, Princess Diana's brother, at Althorpe, and 10,000 people showed up. We did a whole day out, we showed the film, and they played the music, and I thought it was amazing. And I got hold of hands and said, you've got to do another concert. Anyway, it took me two years to get him to do two concerts at Hammersmith. It took me another two years to persuade him to go on the road, where when I told him and his manager that they have to go on the bus. He thought I was completely barking mad. <laughs> but ne nevertheless, after the second show, suddenly decided he didn't want to stay in a hotel, but he loved the bus. Fantastic. And now does 100 shows a year. I've got to ask you one more question. 
With Johnny Marr. Johnny yeah. Marr, exactly. Yeah. Harvey, yeah. I want to ask you one more question, really, about the future of rock and roll, certainly the golden age of rock and roll, because obviously with the ABBA concert, is this the way, are we going to be, like, in 20 years' time, are we going to be able to go to see The Who, The Stones, in that format, do you think? Probably. I mean, you'll, you'll see them in virtual reality in, in, in your goggles soon. I mean, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. The ABBA show is really clever. It's terrific. And it, it works. But it costs an arm and a leg. And most, you couldn't multiply that. It's just too expensive. It costs a million dollars a minute to produce that footage. That's what, what? it costs. Well, what? That's what it costs. So it's out of most artists' league. It's done brilliantly well and it's very clever. So the Beatles, the Stones. I don't maybe. know that I want to see that. I'm not sure. Do you do you mean do you mean a million dollars a to minute make. to make it, yes, or a million dollars a minute every no, show? No, no, to make it, to make <laughs> right, the footage, right, yeah, right. and and to sync it and to do it in a way that it, the process actually is very simple. The actual process that of what you see when you watch it is simple, but the syncing and how it's done costs a fortune and um so i think you'll probably see more there'll be maybe as you say probably the beatles or something like that will do it but mm -hmm. um i i think we're in a where we are at a fork in the road because rock and roll as we all know it as we grew up etc etc um it's not really going the way it should be because the big kind of the dinosaur acts, the acts that have been around for a long time, they're currently bathing in glory, having fabulous time on the road. They're not going to be around for much longer. They're not being replaced. What's being replaced is different kind of instant music. So I think we're at a fork in the road and I think it needs some action really by everybody to try and start to think about what is the future because it's different. And it should be different mm -hmm. because everything evolves. I don't have a problem with yeah. that. But what I'm seeing that's different is very subliminal and very quick, very instant. I can't see acts being around for 20, 30 years yeah. with the odd half a dozen exceptions. It's like you say, because those big name acts aren't coming up. But the but the communal experience, the festival thing, all that is, is, is bigger than it's ever that's been, true. isn't it? But the acts that are headlining that have all been around forever. That's right. Look, yeah. at, look at the ones this this uh, summer, you know, Glastonbury. Yeah. So I, I think we're heading for a bit of a a problem. But as ever, as the the wheel turns around, you get to the bottom of the of the wheel, and then it suddenly starts to take up its own momentum again, and then a whole new genre of music will come out, and off we go again. Harvey, you are the mayor of rock. There's no question, isn't he? I mean. Yeah, the chainmail. That's a very good way of The chainmail is is worn regally. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on, mate. Pleasure. I enjoyed uh, it. Absolute joy, and I look forward to sitting behind a panel table with you and being yes, yes. at some point in the future. If not before, yes, definitely. I, mean, <laughs> I enjoyed this so much. I mean, you are yeah, so great. the best at telling these stories. I, I've got to say this. So I know just from sitting around tables with you before, there is hours more of this stuff. Of you know. The Elton stories, the oh. bands, you know, the, yeah, you know. All right, mate, thanks. touched on it. Well, Thank you very much. We'll get you back on. Thanks so much, Harvey. Thanks. Lots of love. All the best to Thank you. Thank you.
But well, if that didn't knock your socks off, I don't know what will. I know. I mean, that one, that these two, part one and part two, should really just be sort of put in a time capsule and sent into space for aliens to listen to. Didn't they do that once? Was it Carl Sagan made a record, didn't he? Do you remember? Well, he... No, there's the Voyager. There's all the stuff on Voyager. Yeah. I don't know if I, I don't know if a, a a British concert promoter is necessarily the thing <laughs> that would make most sense to the alien. But he's, he's, he's kind I get of where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 who? What was on that Carl Sagan record, by the way? That, uh, what, that... was the Michelangelo, you know, World in Action. No, but a piece of vinyl. There was vinyl that went oh, up into space. Was it? I, I yeah, know. with tracks on it. Maybe was it was on, people speaking. I, don't know. I was on the ISS for you. Delicate Sound of Thunder, Pink Floyd live album. Really? I wondered where you. I wondered where you were. I kept trying to call you. <laughs> yeah, I'd do anything to avoid dinner. <laughs> um, listen, if anyone knows what was on that record, uh, if there was anything at all, and I'm not just imagining it, then no, uh, there was something. There was something. Yeah. Tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us. All right. Well, uh, thank you to Ben Jones, our uh, wonderful. Oh, hang on. I think it was chirpy, chirpy, tweet, tweet, wasn't it? Oh, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap. No, cheap, tweet, cheap. tweet. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, whatever. Uh, thank you to Ben, uh, Gimme Sugar, for producing this. And um, thank you to him, and thank you to me, and thank you to Harvey, and uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.